0: It's Amy's Table, a girl's guide to living with Amy Tobin on Q102. Pull up a chair and join us. When you enter your kitchen and prepare to cook, do you grab a couple of cans, a measuring cup, fire up your rice cooker, turn on the stove, maybe set the timer to know precisely when everything's done? And do you ever wonder about how these items came to be and how we ever lived without them? Well, B. Wilson is a food writer, historian, and author, and she's joining me today on Amy's Table to talk about her latest book. It's called Consider the Fork, a history of how we cook and eat. Welcome, B.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, you know, your book really did get me to thinking about, you know, we take so much for granted, but how did all of these discoveries and technologies affect not just the way we eat, but the way we live?
1: They affected them hugely. I mean just to take one really big example that I think we just don't notice quite because it's so obvious. We used to organise our houses and by extension our lives around fire. Um the literal meaning of the word focus comes from the Latin for fireplace. You know, fire was everything to us. It was how we cooked food, it was how we warmed our houses. And then now, if you look at today's kitchens Arguably, the starting point is not fire, but cold. Um, The refrigerator is the single statement piece around which shopping for food, cooking, everything starts now with the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge change, and that only came in the 20th century. Um, So I think that's an example of the ways in which some of these technological changes are almost hidden from us because we deal with them every single day. We don't think very much about pots and pans and wooden spoons and how we would actually manage to cook without them.
0: Or the microwave, for heaven's sake. You know, I mean, the even microwave, that. Yeah,
1: That's a huge one. And I think the microwave has been much maligned because it's very useful for certain things. I love it for melting chocolate because you can do it much more precisely than, well, I find it easier than using a bain-marie in the
0: traditional I agree. Way. I agree. And I just set my microwave on to defrost and my microwave knows what, you know, how to gently do it. It's true. It's well, clever. yeah. You, you know, one of the most interesting things that I found perusing the book was how the different knives across the world ended up affecting the different cuisines. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Absolutely. And I think so often when we talk about cuisines, we talk mainly in terms of flavors, which obviously are very, very important. So if you look at the difference between Chinese cuisine and classical French cuisine, you could talk about how Chinese food is founded on ginger and scallions and garlic, whereas in French cuisine, there would be kind of butter and lemon juice. But you could also talk about knives and the fact that a top professional French chef would need many, many different specialist knives to do his job, ranging from chestnut peelers to ham slicers, whereas a Chinese chef can do every slicing job he wishes to do in the kitchen using this single fearsome object, the two, which can do everything from slicing pieces of ginger, parchment, thin, to hacking at a chicken. And this is a huge cultural change, which has then changes which we can see on the plate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the nature of Chinese cuisine, the fact that everything is chopped very small and cooked fast in a wok, at its root, it's to do with frugality. It's about having scarce resources and wanting to get the most out of your cooking fuel. But what it led to was this astonishing inventiveness. Um, so often kind of necessity does become the mother of invention.
0: It's true. Well, you know, you talk about frugality leading to, for example, stir fry. It's interesting to me how many recipes that people just adore and love through the ages came from frugality, you know, French toast was a yes. woman not letting go of that bread or, you know, macaroni and cheese because someone had a little edge of cheese and some pasta to make a meal. And and I wonder, you know, how much do the utensils affect that kind of thing? Like, have utensils not changed in some respects as much as they have to, to stick with our beloved dishes? I think we get
1: very comforted, don't we, by these objects, in the kitchen i know we all have our favorites i have certain pots and pans that i always reach for time and again without thinking about it um so i think we are creatures of habit in the kitchen and this is reflected in the tools i mean things like the mortar and pestle has existed more or less in the same form for ten thousand years
0: Mm -hmm.
1: on the other hand the tasks that it's used for are completely different for me it's just a fun object i was just using it earlier to grind some cumin seeds To add to a pilaf, that's a very kind of easy thing to do, whereas in the past they were back-breaking tools which we used to grind enough subsistence grain to get you through the day. Right. So things kind of change and stay the same at the same
0: time. And, you know, the other thing, when you mentioned that, for example, the knives affect the different cuisine, if you were to pull open a kitchen drawer in any, any kitchen in any country around the world... Are the the utensils beginning to be more um, similar, or would I be lost in a Japanese kitchen or, you know, an Indonesian kitchen, or are we starting to sort of become a global kitchen?
1: That's a very good question. I think there are certain things which are very particular to certain cultures. I mean, things like the kind of rice paddles you might find in Afghanistan, as opposed to the shape of rice paddles you would have in Japan. Those things are really specific and don't seem to change very quickly. But then other things, you mentioned the microwave. That's now one of the most beloved and fast-selling kitchen tools in China, which certainly was not the case even 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's huge. I think there are certain things that you see everywhere. Um, and I, I mean, if we think of the basic utensils, um, spoons, spoons, You find spoons in every single culture of the world. Everyone needs some sort of object, both for stirring food and for ferrying food to your mouth in order to eat it. Right. And these things are just very human and very basic. Um, So we're not so different, I think. Cooks around the world are fairly united in their desire to kind of heat something up, make it taste good, and get it on the table.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with B. Wilson. She's the author of Consider the Fork, a history of how we cook and eat. And, you know, I heard a story. There's so many sort of lores and legends around kitchens and eating and dining. And I heard a story about when you set the table, the way the knife is placed. Of course, way back when, and and I'm probably telling the story wrong, you of all people will know, but people used to bring their own personal knife to the table and and use it to eat in a way. When we began to be more civilized, the knife was placed to the side of the plate to show you weren't being aggressive. Am I telling any kind of a true That's story? absolutely right. I mean, okay, the, good.
1: <laughs> the basic foundation of all table manners is a terror of violence at the table. And it's because when eating... In the West, anyway, so in China, they deal with this problem by doing all of the chopping out of sight in the kitchen, and knives never come into the equation when eating. That's the point of chopsticks, is to preserve you from the terror of knives. But in the West, where we've always used knives at table, we've had various ways of managing this problem. And for years, yes, people used to just carry their own sharp, personal, dagger-like objects with them and bring them out and you'd no more think of using a stranger's knife than today we would brush our teeth with a stranger's toothbrush it's very particular to the owner um but then once table knives were used all of these elaborate rules start to develop about how you must hold them how you mustn't use them too much if you think of most of the rules about polite ways to eat at table the rule became if in doubt use a fork because the fork um Is by its very nature a far less violent thing than a knife. Um, and by definition, if you're eating something with a fork, it's probably already been cut up and is therefore not so terrifying. You're not, you haven't got that fear that the person sitting next to you is going to pull their knife on you. Well, you know, it really it's... must have been very real at various stages in history.
0: Sure. Eating was <laughs> not just for survival, but you were terrified yeah. while doing it. Well, of course, you know, the fork, the spoon, such important utensils that have stood the test of time. And then, of course, came the spork you know about the spork. (laughs) So that's something that's a little bit bizarre. Is there any utensil that you've discovered through your research that is just so quirky, so strange that it just didn't make it through, you know, didn't last through history, stayed back in the old days?
1: I mean, there have been so many. There's often ones which have come at just the wrong point. So things like there was a kind of a huge boom in egg beaters in the States, in the second half of the 19th century, over 600 different patents issued for different egg beaters. Wow. And including ones which sound really ingenious, like there was a water-powered egg beater. Um, and it may have been a fantastic object, but it was immediately superseded by the fact that people then had electric mixers, such as the sort of stand mixer that we'd think of the Kitchen Aid, and so on. Um, so who would then need a water-powered egg beater? <laughs> but actually, now in this carbon-scarce age, it sounds like quite a good idea. It does. Um, Another one, I mean, one of the tools which I encountered at first hand, which I was just most impressed and amazed by, a female inventor called Mrs. Marshall in Britain in the 1880s invented this incredible hand cranking ice cream maker, which without any electricity, obviously, at that time, um, can make delicious smooth ice cream in five minutes flat way faster than any of the affordable electric ice cream makers that you can buy now. And that just, I couldn't believe that something could be so much better. We think that everything improves and that there's this progress towards kind of perfection in technology. And that isn't always the case. The big drawback was that she made it out of zinc, which is a mildly toxic metal. So you wouldn't actually want to eat the ice cream. (laughs) But if somebody today could take her design and make it out of, I don't know, stainless steel, it'd
0: be great. Oh, I think that's fascinating. An ice cream in five minutes with no electricity would be pretty amazing. I'm always on the lookout of what I would need to take to go on a desert island and live well. <laughs> well, I, it's a fascinating book. What a, what a fascinating job you have. And and I've loved speaking with you today. I'm going to put a link to Bee's information on amystable.com as well as a link to the book. It's called Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat. And B. Wilson, it's just been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Stick around for another helping from Amy's Table on Q102.
1: Splash, flash. splash weather repel premium windshield wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain sleet snow and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine and its advanced beading technology keeps you seeing safely all year long see safely on the road when you apply a little splash pick some up at walmart today